All right, everybody, welcome back to the Hale Institute podcast. Uh, this is Timon Klein, Director of Scholarly Initiatives for the Hale Institute. And uh, we've got a new guest on the show uh, this week, Adam Carrington, who's a professor of politics at Hillsdale College. Uh, Adam, thanks so much for coming on. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on with you. Absolutely. Uh, so, Adam, the, many of our audience, uh, you know, maybe may be familiar with you, uh, certainly with Hillsdale and some of your work. But just give us a brief kind of introduction to yourself and what got you to uh, the, the point that you're at now. Sure. Um, well, I was interested in politics from probably fifth grade, uh, which shows that I probably didn't have a lot of friends, uh, uh, or certainly uh, uh, it was harder to get a date with that even into high school uh, when <laughs> politics was the thing you loved. But uh, have always been interested, uh, therefore, since an early age in those questions. But I, it was pretty superficial uh, looking back in the sense of I, I didn't understand the deep underlying sort of permanent questions of what is justice, where where does that idea come from, what's our authority, what's the purpose of government, and that really came when I got to college. Uh, I went to Ashland University, which is uh, about an hour mm -hmm. south of Cleveland in Ohio, but it has a, a, an amazing center there called the John M. Ashbrook Center, which does mm -hmm. a lot of liberal arts meets civic uh, literacy and really was opened up to reading the ancients, Plato, Aristotle, reading the Federalist Papers. So seeing the underlying ideas and, and, and did a few internships there, but really was taken aside at one point and told by Peter Schramm, who is now passed, but was the director then of that center. He says, you need to stop doing the things you think you're going to do and you need to go be a, a teacher and teach hmm. politics. Um, so I, I didn't immediately say, said that was okay, but I, I, eventually he was right. Um, I, I did make a detour, uh, to a year at Westminster Theological Seminary because I was a double major politics and religion at, at Ashland and was interested early on in how those interacted, but decided that, no, I, I really did want to teach this from the politics angle Westminster was the idea of, did I want to teach it from uh, the, the theological side? So I, I went down to Baylor University, uh, got a master's and PhD there, uh, continued my interest in the in intersection of politics and religion, but uh, partly due to a very good professor there and partly due to just the uh, what, where were there more jobs, to be honest? <laughs> I also got deeply into constitutional law and particularly how the Supreme Court looks at separation of powers and, and how the theory of separation of powers philosophically informs the American experience. So um, I did a dissertation on Justice Stephen Field, who was a Lincoln appointee mm -hmm. to the Supreme Court. Um, that became my, my, my first book. And uh, right out of of um, uh, right out of Hillsdale, uh, or no, pardon me, right out of uh, 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 Baylor, I, I got a job that I have now at Hillsdale College, where I've now been for uh, coming up on ten years, and oh, so wow. I get to teach a variety of things there, uh, and kind of put a lot of these prior interests together 
that, that maybe we'll get a chance to go through religion and politics, separation of powers, political philosophy in relation to that. It's been a real fruitful area being a, a liberal arts institution where you can kind of cross pollinate the way those different disciplines speak to each other and, and has been uh, very fruitful for, for my own work. Excellent. Yeah. And in, indeed the um, that's, I, I didn't know that, that you did a stint at Westminster. I'm a Westminster alum myself. So uh, it, it sounds like the OPC ran you off, but it's, it's good that you at least passed through there. Um, yep. And yeah, and, and I didn't realize either that you had been at, at Hillsdale for so long at this point. That's, that's fantastic. Big, big fan of Hillsdale. And, um, and I, I've also known several people that have gone through Ashland and just always seem to be very sharp and well-read. Seems like it's a good, good program there. Um, and so, as you said, some of your expertise um, is in, you know, constitutionalism generally, and you do you do a fair bit of uh, popular commentary in that regard as well on the court, on uh, constitutional issues generally. But uh, I want to begin with um, w- what you said. You know, your your interest that led you to where you are today, which is the relationship between politics and religion. Uh, similar interests myself and, and similar background in that, uh, you know, my early interest in politics and, uh, you know, high school was pretty much equated to me wearing like a Bush Cheney shirt to, to class, you know, that was about it. But, uh, it got much more fun as you have a chance to, to read, uh, you know, more deeply about the sort of philosophical, uh, underpinnings of, you know, what's going on in, in the American system. And so just beginning with like broad strokes, you know, the um, a big question that's that's sort of swirling around now in popular debates is, I would say, broadly conceived the relationship between religion, specifically Christianity and the American uh, tradition, American political order. We, we've had Mark David Hall on to talk about, uh, you know, similar themes from his perspective. Um, but maybe we can get into that a little bit. You know, some some of this debate is uh, kind of the impetus for it is the discussion about Christian nationalism, but we don't want to limit ourselves there. What is the, you know, from your perspective, if you're talking to your students, how would you describe the relationship at the founding and in the, uh, you know, let's, let's say after articles of confederation, let's get to the, the constitution. What is, what is the relationship that's intended and actually exists between religion generally, Christianity in particular, and the, the American political system? Right. No, that and that is a question that I, I've wrestled with for a long time and, and felt um, as particularly as, as as a very confirmed Protestant that there weren't necessarily when I was in college, the resources to wrestle with that in a serious way hmm. and have been thankful for the different publications and the different retrievals that have been growing, especially over the last maybe five, six, seven to 10 years to, to make that kind of conversation, I think more thoughtful and deeper and more grounded in, in our history. So the way I would bring it to my students who are themselves tend to be at Hillsdale religious, uh, broadly Christian, but Mm-hmm. very much diverse within that realm. So lots of Roman Catholic, lots of Lutheran, lots of uh, Anglican, lots of uh, Baptist, uh, you know, Presbyterian, uh, kind of across the board, is to bring them uh, to 
actually a, a document that immediately precedes the Constitution and is then reaffirmed after it, and that's the Northwest Ordinance. Mm-hmm. That's often a, a document I like to begin with because its first article commits the uh, only federal territory existing at the time to a kind of religious liberty, saying that we will not molest people in their religious, basically, beliefs and practices so long as they are conducting themselves in an orderly and, and, and orderly manner. Um, but then two articles down, Article 3 famously says that religion and morality and knowledge are essential to good government and the happiness of, of, of human beings. And then says that it's committing itself to a, a form of, of regularized education. So there it commits to some public role for religion and says that religion is necessary, not just good, not just helpful, necessary for good government and the happiness of mankind. And so I say that that kind of tension, I think, continues throughout American history that we have committed ourselves to religion as a public good while committing ourselves to some kind of religious liberty that is well beyond what has been historically the case. And uh, particularly, what I have to usually develop on that is that third article, the the public Mm -hmm. role of religion. What does that look like? Because uh, we have some that want to kind of reestablish medieval high Catholic uh, Christendom, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I think is incompatible with America for a variety of reasons, some of which you've also written on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, not take take on kind of the libertarian view that exists here among some as well of a kind of just religion being completely privatized. And that's where I think the the issue of natural law, the issue of revealed uh, the, the 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 role of revealed religion becomes very important as well. Scripture and mm-hmm. and how we appropriate in a biblical theological way uh, what Scripture has to say. And so then we're able to get into. I, I don't want to drone on too long. Uh, so I want to see where you might want to take it, but mm-hmm. into discussions about the role of the Ten Commandments and how the mm-hmm. Decalogue interacts with natural law, but maybe even goes beyond it, and mm-hmm. and, and and the role of um, uh, how we get our concept of rights and and those sorts of questions, and really how fundamentally linked to Christian language, but also underlying Christian concepts. Right. So you were talking about, you know, this sort of uh, tension, you began with the Northwest Ordinance between, you know, a a new, um, historically new mode, we could say, of religious liberty uh, that begins to develop in the early, in the founding period and in the, the antebellum period, early republic period of the country. Some of this is is intentional, some of it's organic, depending on which angle you're, we're coming from. Um you know, I, I guess stepping back a bit in in your assessment of the you know of of this process and of the constitutional order that's that's founded, um, you know, in eighty eighty seven into ninety one. What you know, how do you use or do you use um, you know colonial kind of pre founding data to inform you know the our, our interpretive approach to these things? Does that is that something that you emphasize that you think has been, you know, is there more or less continuity between uh, the two? 
Yes, I, I think there is it's certainly at least some level of continuity. I think that's part of, part of the debate. But I'll tell you a couple things I do have my students read, and I try to always be pretty text-based in class. Mm -hmm. I don't like to just tell them, take my word for it, that this is going on because uh, you've just seen too many college professors at too many places <laughs> utterly misrepresent things. And so I say, hold me accountable through the text. Like right. I can give you greater context, but uh, a, a couple things I'll give, for example, is uh, I will give them John Winthrop, two things by him, the most famous being the model of Christian charity. But I think an mm -hmm. understudied one that I'm sure you're familiar with is his little speech on liberty, mm -hmm. where he really emphasizes the importance of the of liberty being uh, right, liberty being according to virtue, that virtue being understood according to the laws of God, and that that kind of liberty is not libertinism. It's not license. And, and so I'll, I'll and, and, and what I usually pair that with is uh, a lesser known document, the Synod at Cambridge, which argues about sort of contra um, uh, 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 some other uh, things going on at the time, argues for the, the some kind of enforcement of both tables of the Ten Commandments. And really makes the more that not so much the church state institutional divide, but the difference between the, the church being concerned with the, the internal, the soul, the conscience, and the, uh, the, 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 the magistrate being more concerned with the external and particularly the actions one takes in relation to one, to, to, to religion, to, to, all 10 commandments actually. So I, I, a lot of my students have had no exposure to that, even though that was pretty standard belief. If you're reading Calvin, if you're reading mm -hmm. the magister, other magisterial reformers. And, uh, so, so I really try to get them to see that and then to ask, even in light of later developments, how do we see the, the, the connection between um, that view and, and ongoing uh, ideas of religion? And I think you see even after the, the uh, First Amendment becomes uh, a part of you know, the Constitution, you see laws against blasphemy, you see laws against profanity uh, in, in the narrow sense, taking the Lord's name in vain. Mm -hmm. uh, you see appeals to God's law as being underneath the law of that, that, that human beings themselves are, are making in, in the various states. So I think um, I try to show them that uh, maybe uh, the Puritans maybe don't live on an unvarnished form <laughs> in the 19th century, but uh, we we do owe a, a significant debt to where we get our idea that a political community can be held together the way it is. Right. Yeah. This this is a uh, you know, and I I love the Puritan that spent a lot of my time on them, but it's sort of this balance that has to be struck if you're trying to relate them to you know their their centuries later or a century and a half later progeny. You know, one thing you can do in the in the 
late 19th, early 20th century is kind of the progressive take that you see in Henry Cabot Lodge, who gets a, a lot right, but it's, he almost wants to make it, you know, like this idea of religious liberty he's operating with then just uh, sprung immediately from them, you know, and give them yeah. all the credit. And then on the other hand, you could say, uh, you, you could err in the, you know, to the other extreme. Um, yeah, if I could if I could say that even starts in the in the sort of romantic trend right. who give these great speeches like Daniel Webster and others. Uh, I think Webster maybe even gave a speech from Plymouth Rock, uh, if I remember. <laughs> I, I sorry, don't, don't quote me. Quote me on that. I'm trying to remember which big Whig, right. which, which one of the big like wigs of New England did this, but which really kind of rethinks the Puritans in their image. Mm -hmm. And it's not that the image is utterly without evidence, but mm -hmm. that, that sort of Whiggish history that itself is kind of a precursor to progressive history um, uh, tries to kind of, I think, creatively appropriate the Puritans rather than maybe entirely faithfully do so. Right. Right. Yeah. Them, them as a, you know, taken as a sort of conditioner of, you know, the, the people of New England, and it's, you can see vestiges of that is, is one thing, but then to uh, sort of read back into them everything we want, um, you know, it's probably more common today for people to demonize them, but for a while they were still venerable. Um, you know, Calvin Coolidge has that famous speech where he's like, every everything in the, in the declaration is from Thomas Hooker. And you're like, okay, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's quite the case. Um, and then, and you know, you have evidence of their own time where they they will kind of deny uh, forthrightly religious liberty um, to you know the Anabaptists or whatever. So it's it's more complicated than that. But I think it's um, I'm encouraged that at least more and more people are open to uh, considering the colonial background. Um, but another you know sort of interpretive aspect when we're looking at the the Constitution is is to consider even at the time of the of the founding and for quite a while thereafter, you know, the, a stronger sort of federalist model than we currently, I would say, operate under post-incorporation. And the same kind of tension you were talking about in the Northwest Ordinance is there. And, one, you know, my favorite example to cite is uh, New Jersey's first constitution, where they have a beautiful article on religious liberty for everybody. And then the very next article is, you know, but only Protestants are going to have full civil rights, basically, to be able to participate and lead the, the state. So that's another, you know, aspect we could, we could talk about is uh, religious liberty as being, you know, protection of the laws equally, um, you know, non-molestation of dissenters. But at the same time, there seems to be a generally Protestant establishment, even if there's not an established church, which there wasn't in New Jersey at the time, but a general sense that Protestants will you know, are expected to lead. This is a basically Protestant country. We can kind of slide the Quakers in to be Protestants and all the, you know, I think Francis Bremer says they are actually, you know, just basically Puritans, but heterodox. So, but that kind of milieu is, is lost to us now, but it, it seems to have informed the model as originally conceived, at, at least in terms of assumptions. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's the case. And that's why even as late as the 1960s or 1960, when JFK runs for president, he has to give that famous speech to the I think the Baptist Convention in Texas, was it where yeah. he says he has to say, I, I I'm OK, guys. But mm -hmm. that's that's a long time down the road. And, and I think what that also shows is attempts to completely divorce doctrine from 
practice doctrine in the church from practice in politics just never can really work. I mean, you mm-hmm. can you can be clear that there are separate maybe purposes, overlapping but still distinct purposes between church and state. Um, but part of this is, and I know you had written about the outrage of, uh, about the Quebec Act in, in yeah. the colonial era, and I thought that was very helpful and right and good, that um, for a long time, the, uh, the, the, the going back to at least the gunpowder plot in 1605 in <laughs> England and, and before, um, Roman Catholicism had been seen as a political threat, not just doctrinally mm-hmm. imperfect or, 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 or flat out wrong. And that was because really the the Protestantism had a view that could accommodate and really support nation nation states and the respect that I I would say Romans 13 demands Mm -hmm. of the magistrate as directly empowered by God. Uh, If you're really serious about sort of high medieval Catholicism, that's just not palpable, really the the power is really being given, um, at least in the highest form of this argument, to the Pope, and then the Pope is dispensing it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, if people that uh, have seen the the Napoleon movie, the mm-hmm. importance of Napoleon crowning himself, right? right. Uh, as as, as, as uh, really not because he was Protestant, but you know, that Protestants wouldn't have had uh, had the, a problem with that. And so I, I think that uh, the idea that um, uh, that that's important. Uh, and I think that there was the idea that uh, pro- that that um, also the idea that the Reformation was more amenable to a kind of popular government um, mm-hmm. and a kind of rule of law a kind of going against the old monarchies of, of, of Europe that really Roman Catholicism was not. And, and I think that some of those worries and concerns was to say, we, we do believe all men are created equal and that that includes Catholic or Protestant, but what small C constitution do we need to protect? Meaning what values, principles, characteristics that, have a kind of ordered liberty and the idea was uh really that 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 this is originating out of protestantism and and some people may remember samuel huntington mm-hmm. who wrote the famous clash of civilizations article and then book uh one of his last books more focused on america he basically says and i don't know that he was very religious i assume he wasn't uh he says if america had been founded by Catholic Spain, would it be a very different country than it being settled by Protestant England and then other predominantly Protestant countries? He says, yeah, a very different Mm -hmm. country. And I think that that was being recognized even as far back as those constitutions and trying to be balanced again. I think that is a further manifestation of some of the broader things that were said in the Northwest Ordinance. Mm. Yeah, I've done a it, it, it actually, I looked this up one time on a, on, for some reason, I was just curious, you know, like on Westlaw and things to try to see how often American courts have, have referenced Protestant reformers. And it was, it was way more times than I thought, you know, it's obviously not a, this is, it's primarily dicta, 
but it's interesting, especially in the 20th century, how often, uh, you know, common law court judges would just kind of go on a, a, a brief like church history primer and, and tell everybody about, you know, Calvin cited, Bullinger cited, you know, they do well, what kind of, it shows you what they knew and, and how they kind of think. But, um, you know, I'm teaching the, just finished teaching this course on Richard Baxter with, with Michael Lynch. And we were discussing you know, throughout the course and afterwards on, it was at least Baxter's perspective, you know, writing in the mid to late uh, 17th century that, um, you know, you could, you could believe in transubstantiation or have uh, divergent views on justification from a Protestant perspective. And he would say that doesn't make you a Romanist. It doesn't make you a papist. The thing that makes you a papist is to believe in, you know, the papal universal or ecumenical supremacy. And the real thing the Reformation is about, it's central to it, is the the recovery of the proper role of the magistrate and his religious duties over and against that assertion of papal authority. And to him, that's just what it's all about. And that's the central divide. Um, and you kind of see this play out as you're talking about in, in Protestant countries, um, especially in England. And then, of, of course, in America, where you, you just have a very different landscape, very different assumptions about political life uh, because of that, you know, fundamental to the divide. And I think there's something something to that. Um, with getting more sort of theoretical for a minute, because you've mentioned it a few times, I didn't want to forget about it. You know, this, it's very typical today um, to see evangelicals, even evangelical scholars want to have, you know, maybe what they would call a purely natural law sort of governance, meaning, you know, to them, meaning divide the two tables where you govern only according to the second table and the first table is, is sort of out of bounds and this on religious liberty grounds. You know, how, what do you make of, of that trend? Either it's, it's impetus or causes um, and, and then more substantively, you know, do you think that that's appropriate or is there a corrective that's needed there that's even consistent with our own traditions in America? Right. And, and no, and that, and, and I'm glad that that conversation is at least happening. It was not right. happening when I was in college. They're just what it, it was a Roman Catholics talked about natural law and, and, mm -hmm. and, and Protestants talked about some combination of, 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 of scripture plus um, very practical, proactive political movement. So um, I, I mean, I'm glad that's going on, but yes, I think that, to some degree, and I think some of this is intentional and some of it's not, we, 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 we aren't always aware of our own cultural biases or preconceptions, hmm. that division of the first and second table in the way it's done and to say, and, 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 and to even say that the second table is purely natural law and the first table is not, is I think a reading backward. Mm-hmm our current situation because we can all kind of get behind murder bad stealing bad right, right. um uh, although adultery illegalized even that gets you know <laughs> uh, 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 it, it, people get uncomfortable so e even that sort of gets modified and 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 sort of explained away whereas if you read for example the 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 synod of cambridge that i mentioned or if you read some of these other works, they're actually saying the whole Decalogue. Uh, another would be mm -hmm. Samuel Rutherford would be a good uh, a, mm -hmm. a, a Presbyterian example in, in Scotland. 
uh, they're all saying the whole table includes the natural law. Mm -hmm. uh, the first table is manifesting at least principles of the natural law. Uh, I would say that Thomas Aquinas agrees with that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I, I, first I would say, I think that's, that that's a false distinction and that it's really more a question of what should the state do about all of the natural law mm -hmm. and, and that the natural law really is commandments one through 10. And, and I think that if you, if you really try to separate those out, you get into some real like uh, exegetical somersaults right. <laughs> with 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 uh, the biblical text itself. So uh, so first, I would say they're 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 all manifesting part of the natural law. But why are the Ten Commandments there at all? our understanding of who God is and who we are and what we owe to God and to each other has been greatly distorted by the fall. And we need scripture to clarify and to build upon what the, the natural knowledge of God originally was for us. And so I, I think that um, to say that you can't bring scripture to bear in, in public debates, you need to have a good biblical theology. How has mm -hmm. revelation and God's relationship to his people unfolded? And how maybe, for example, sorry, dispensationalists, are we different than Israel, right? Um, but at the same time, uh, to, to try to reduce all public reasoning or, 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 or arguments to a kind of God in the background, deistic um, uh, sort of uh, 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 reason alone, I think just doesn't comport with the scripture, doesn't comport with the Protestant tradition, and really smells more like John Rawls and his kind of, mm -hmm. for those who are familiar with him, his overlapping consensus and some of these other things, just baptized slightly, sprinkle baptized with uh, a, a kind of um, background religiosity. Right. Yeah. Could, couldn't agree more on that. And of course, the you know, the, the, the founders wouldn't, I don't think they would have uh, categories for, or understand what we're talking about if, if you need to re relegate certain source material to the sidelines in order to gain entrance to a public debate. I mean, Donald Lutz did all that work on even accepting sermons, how, you know, the Bible is cited more than any other uh, source, uh, you know, during the, uh, in the pamphlets and in the debates and these things. And of course you add back in the sermons and how ubiquitous that model of communication was. And it's just, it's just very different. I mean, clearly they wouldn't yeah. have been bothered, uh, you know, by this, but it also at the same time for, to go at the biblicist a bit, um, you know, natural law, that tradition stretching back, uh, you know, to Aquinas. And you can see this in someone like James Wilson very easy, easily and obviously, uh, that tradition is also alive and well. I mean, it all goes together to them and the, yeah. you know, perhaps in our epistemology given, um, you know, challenges over the past century or so, we've bifurcated the two too easily instead of recognizing their mutual dependence. Um, yeah, I, I like to give, I like to get, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, no, I like no, to no. give my, I like to give my students Psalm 19. Yeah. And how it mm -hmm. opens with the heavens declare the glory of God. And then it turns around verse six or seven, I think it is, to the law of the Lord. And the famous, th and the fa by the way, uh, the, the famous phrases in the King James that Lincoln quotes in mm -hmm. the second inaugural. 
Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I try There are students that I think really wrestle with this and some of them wrestle with it from I'm a 21st century kind of classical liberal American mm-hmm. and those who are I, I, I'm, I'm a high medieval, you know, let's party like it's 1299 <laughs> kind of Catholic <laughs> and and trying to say, hey, maybe look at this text in Scripture mm-hmm. as a way of saying that you need to think that God reveals himself in both ways. Mm-hmm. And and as a Protestant, Scripture is ultimate. Scripture is primary. But mm-hmm. to say that God reveals himself in contradictory ways or that he has not revealed himself in both these ways, I think, is actually not being faithful to uh, Scripture itself or how the church has understood that witness, at least until, you know, post Karl Barth <laughs> right. or something along right. those lines. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think that has been um, I, can't, I can't I'm trying to remember who wrote the, uh, you know, one of the sort of first volleys uh, into this recovery of natural law tradition for Protestants, you know, probably 20 years ago now, um, but, but makes the point, you know, at le- we can at least blame Bart. Maybe that's not exactly where it began, but certainly it was, a, it was in full swing then to sort of, uh, you know, get, get rid of natural law or, or deny it from the uh, uh, Protestant perspective. Um, another, you know, issue when you're talking about, you know, the use of scripture by Protestants, that's kind of strange to me today is is for people to then not only want to bifurcate natural law from from scripture as if the two don't reference each other and necessitate the other, um, but then also do the same thing with the Old and New Testament. And you'll kind of see a new, from my perspective, given the Protestant tradition, um, ignorance towards the Old Testament in terms of our political life as if it can't say anything to us because we don't want to be theonomist. So therefore you don't use it um, as any sort of providing any uh, advice or political models or anything like this. Um, and you can only appeal to the New Testament, which, you know, leaves you from their perspective to a few verses that, that gets you uh, little if nowhere, you know, in the way that they use them. So what's your, you know, perspective to uh, when you talk to students about this sort of using the, the whole counsel of God in our social and politic- political and civic life uh, to inform these things without saying we need to plop down Old Testament Israel and its judicial law right now for us to be just. Yeah, it's sort of political theology Marcionism, right? Exactly. Uh, And 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 uh, I I think that and I think a a number of Christians have can have this problem more generally speaking, too, but especially Mm -hmm. in the political realm. And I, I sort of the, the the way I tried to put it together. No, you, you you can't just copy and paste the Mosaic Law into our statute books, and you're done. Um, I think that that misunderstands again maybe the difference between systematic theology and biblical theology. Uh, that systematics is giving sort of uh, a sort of abstracted final resolutions, whereas biblical theology is showing how there is an unfolding of revelation. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, but I, I, where I think there's a problem there among those who want to scuttle any political wisdom in the Old Testament, one is it's just historically bad if you respect the, the very church fathers, whether reformational, and I'd consider them church fathers too, of, of a certain mm-hmm. sense. And, and, and going back to Augustine, 
they it's not as we sometimes treat them as if they were dumb, that, that, <laughs> that they didn't understand these nuances. But if you look at the Westminster Confession itself, it, sure, it says that we're not to copy and paste the civil law. Mm -hmm. uh, the judicial law, pardon me, is what it calls it. Mm -hmm. But it says we can follow it what, to the degree the general equity demands. Uh, and, and so I think the idea is the, the, this old, the, there is lots of wisdom in the Old Testament law because it was, yes, the application of the eternal and natural law and, the, and, and, and basically the law of God to a particular people and to a particular time. But it showcases what the underlying principles of justice that apply to all times and all peoples it, it included. Uh, and, and I think you, that means you have to search the scriptures in the Old Testament to find what was particular to the application of the, the people of Israel and what was the underlying truth. But if you read Calvin and his biblical commentaries, if you read uh, Luther, if you read all of the reformers, it, it, they're wrestling with it in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, they're seeing, they're, they're approaching with that nuance. Uh, and the other thing is the examples of kings. I, I don't know how you read the story of Rehoboam Mm -hmm. And the approach he took to the people of Israel and, and listening to the young men's advice to basically double down on tyranny rather than the old men's advice to approach with a sort of leniency and grace and don't say you can't learn something about politics there. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't see how you read Proverbs, which in many ways seems written to uh, uh, the son of Solomon potentially and, and, and uh, Rehoboam as a political ruler and don't see wisdom there. Um, and so what it, you kind of ask this in the context of what I do with my students. Um, I really, uh, I taught, I sometimes teach a one credit hour class on politics in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And we, we will try, we will try to show that kind of dichotomy or that, that kind of um, tension to what degree is the Old Testament uh, a manifestation of God's particular dealing with a particular people, but how does it participate in this broader political wisdom? And, and I think that it, it's, it's hard to exhaust the kind of political wisdom that the Old Testament gives for people to understand the nature of law, the nature of justice, the wisdom of how to apply it to a particular people, and the examples, good and bad, of rulers themselves. So uh, mm -hmm. I, I know I've been going on for a while, but as you can tell, there's just so much there that mm -hmm. I, I think that um, we are really impoverishing our own resources for political discourse if we uh, merely reduce everything to praying for our rulers out of out of Paul's letters to Timothy and mm -hmm. uh, calling for some kind of a generic submission out of Romans 13. Uh, you are not bringing to bear the whole counsel of God and you're impoverishing your own political discourse because of it. Yeah, I could, couldn't agree more. I was, I was struck uh, a few weeks ago when I was, I reread for the first time in, I guess, a couple of years or something, you know, James, uh, the first advice to his son, Henry and, uh, you know, the, he spends a lot of time giving him instruction on piety and his own personal devotional life. And he tells him, you know, to, to, of course, read all of scripture, but especially to focus on, 
you know, those parts of the Old Testament that that give the stories of good kings and bad kings, good judges and bad judges, because that's how he'll learn how to perform his duty. And he doesn't say you have to, uh, you know, be a carbon copy of any of these people. It's the, but he just, it's this sense that uh, if you read about good and bad examples, examples, you'll learn how to conduct yourself, uh, you know, here. And that's, that's key for you. So I, I, th I think, you know, this, I'm not quite sure when uh, that sense of, and use of the Old Testament was lost, but I think we need to uh, desperately need to recover it. Um, speaking of, of law, you mentioned this, uh, you know, we were talking about the use of the Old Testament law in particular, not just the examples of kings. And, um, you know, in, in one of your classes you teach, and you, I think you said you just finished one up on Montesquieu, um, you know, he talks about how good, good law has to be a sort of accommodated uh, to a particular people, right? And, and this is a very standard observation, but he, he says this um, early on in the spirit of the laws, uh, you know, it has to respect sort of their, their character, their history, traditions, so on and so forth, uh, which, which would be, I think, in, in line with what the, what the confession was saying about, uh, you know, the use of the Old Testament law. You still, it's particular to a time and place. Uh, that doesn't mean the the natural law that's embedded therein and is applied to those people is useless, but it's um, it, it can still be instructive. But it's you it's unjust actually to simply plop it down without any kind of consideration uh, for for what the people need. Um, but I want to briefly move into a, a couple more things as we we begin to wrap up here and come up on the hour. Uh, which is one, you know, Montesquieu, maybe talk to us a little, about, a little bit about his understanding of Republican virtue um, as he sees it and, you know, how that was imported by the founders into their thought and, and then, you know, connect it to our future prospects of whether this type of virtue that's necessary is still uh, achievable um, given, given our current kind of situation. Right. And, and Montesquieu, uh, obviously, he's most famous for his articulation of separation of powers. But mm -hmm. I think you pointed to a, another important element, which is he says there's a principle that drives every regime. And it doesn't mean there aren't other principles, but it's some kind of passion in the people that motivates them to act in a fundamental sense. And one of those, he says, is honor. And he says, honor really defines monarchy. Mm -hmm. uh, fear is the second, and fear really defines despotisms. But then virtue, political virtue, he says, really defines the Republican form of governments, which, by the way, interestingly, he doesn't have quite the classical division of those regimes. For mm -hmm. him, republics are either democracies or aristocracies. Mm -hmm. So he actually includes both. Uh, and he also says, I, by political virtue, I don't mean exactly the same thing as moral virtue. Mm -hmm. and, and that's often lost enough that he wrote a preface right before he died, a new preface to the spirit of law saying, I've been misunderstood here to act mm -hmm. as if monarchies have no virtue, moral virtue mm -hmm. in them. But so what is political virtue, though? It, it is um, love of the homeland, which I would retranslate into patriotism, mm -hmm. love of equality and love of the laws. And I think that uh, while those maybe aren't the sum of moral virtue, I think in our republic, they are pretty important. Um, 
we we need to have a kind of patriotic love of the country uh, for the reason, but uh, attached to its goodness. Uh, we need to have a love of law. Part of our equality is the idea that we are governed by laws. We're not governed by the whims of a tyrant or even the whims of a majority. Um, and I think the the idea that that's part of the love of equality is a manifestation of government, as Lincoln said, of, by, and for the people. And I, I think that um, that our prospects going forward for that are, uh, I think that in one way they're good and in one way they're not. And I think the way that they're good is uh, in both a virtuous and a sinful sense, there's manifestations both ways. People want to be in charge of themselves. <laughs> and I think that that can be built into maybe rebuilding a kind of popular basis for government that, I think has been undermined for a variety of reasons we could get into the progressive movement, the administrative state, um, a, a privatization that people have that they don't even care to be involved in public life. Something that all the way back in the 1800s, um, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville penned as a, as a danger. Um, but on the other hand, I think, the worry is, have we lost the moral virtue that I think ultimately has to enliven and inform the political virtue? Uh, do we need to relearn self-government that includes the governing of ourselves? And that's where I think some of the conversations we've been having up to this point are so essential, that we need to learn not just self-government as I'm in charge, but self-government as in I know how to or have learned how to control myself, rule myself according to what is just right, according to the laws of God, both natural and revealed. And that's where I think some of the increasing secularization, some of the increasing other bad elements of our society, we may still want to rule ourselves, but we need to be careful. Have we educated and conditioned ourselves to rule well if we have it and or take it back yeah i'm I was struck by you know in in aristotle's politics he says early you know if if you have a um he's talking about natural hierarchies and things in book one but he's he says you know a constitutional form of government is is possible it's obviously a paraphrase you know among, among equals among people so not only do you consider yourselves equals but you're in a sense, in a broad sense, actually equally capable of working together within the polity for its governance. And it doesn't mean there won't be some people in a higher station, but it's it's essentially a, a practical accommodation to get things done. And so then the, you know, the question is, do, do we still have a critical mass of people with sufficient moral and Republican virtue to be able to make a constitutional government, you know, function? Because not only essentially are we equal, but also politically in this sense is our, our capabilities were equal and we're able to kind of do this. And, and what you're, you know, getting at is, is that's obvious that has to be worked at and it's, it's not a passive thing that's just received. Um, and I, I think the founders, you know, wrote on this sufficiently and, and knew it as well. Um, and that, you know, we, we can talk for several more hours, I'm sure about what's, <laughs> what's gone wrong in, in forms of our education and, uh, you know, child rearing, all these sorts of things that are that are not 
uh, no longer conducive to uh, producing those kinds of citizens. I mean, even, you know, Benjamin Rush has like pretty harsh advice um, about what the, what the Republic should do with parents that, um, you know, are not appropriately raising their kids and educating them. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. it used to be, we don't have to, we don't have to, uh, work that out for in Russia's style, but the point is, we used to be much more serious about this and acknowledge uh, that this this particular balance was fragile if we were going to try this. So, well, um, and if I could just say one quick thing about that, and I know mm-hmm. I've said nothing quick here, but um, <laughs> no, you know, uh, uh, there, there's been a big movement for parental rights among the political mm-hmm. right recently, and I think in many ways very good. And mm-hmm. then you had the last Republican debate where. I think it was uh, Governor DeSantis made a comment about you don't have parents don't have a right to abuse their kids regarding Mm -hmm. transgender surgeries and things like that. And I think that was a good corrective because Mm -hmm. I think in the end, the state for good reason and the church for good reason is interested in children as well. And Mm -hmm. that we Mm -hmm. do have to say parents have the primary responsibility. They have a significant autonomy but they don't have an absolute autonomy either. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, that that's a way that I think the right now needs to be working out this renewal, renewed assertion of parental rights. It's in many ways good, but we can't turn it into an absolute good either for the reasons of the basis of law, justice, and, and, and right mm-hmm. that we've been talking about throughout. Yeah, and, th- and this really gets back to, you know, I don't want to open up a whole nother can of worms, but it gets back to what you're talking about in, in the Protestant tradition of, you know, it, for many theologians in the 17th, uh, even up through the 18th century, you know, they would they would recognize that uh, pastors, the church, have their juridical competency, their expertise, they have the keys of the kingdom. Uh, the, the magistrate cannot, you know, take any of those. He can't assume them for himself. Um, but just like with any profession, so physicians, um, you know, whatever we'd say mechanics now or something, you know, pharmaceutical companies, um, the, the magistrate isn't competent to make medicine, but he can make sure malpractice isn't happening to oh, hurt people. And right. And so it's the that, same thing with like parenting yeah. of you don't get yeah. to usurp the parenting role where you are the parent of all children. Um, but you can make sure that they're doing it well. And you can, yeah. you can, you know, try to try to manage that and make sure that they're not harming kids, of course, but then also that they're they're doing well for them. Yeah. And that's why you can't escape politics. Going back to Aristotle, mm-hmm. he says man is by nature a political animal. And if you're trying to look at what's the what what's the architectonic, to use a, a five dollar word, <laughs> um, science or art that orders all of the others in, yes. in, in, in regular human life. I think theology has a, a claim he doesn't quite understand or, or at least doesn't articulate the way he should, but it's mm-hmm. politics. And that, and, and I use that kind of pitch to my, um, in my one-on-one class where I have students that aren't majors, why does this matter? But it goes on to say, whether you're a nurse or, or, or an architect or a doctor or a writer or a fill in the blank, um, where, where, what is the context in which you live out that vocation or you live out your being a father, mother, uh, sibling, child, being a member of the church, others, it, it, it's in, in politics. It's, it's in mm-hmm. a political community that has ordered itself according to an idea of law and justice. And therefore you can't get away from it. 
and it can't get away from having some interest in what you're doing. We just need to be uh, aware that it needs to be the right interest, the proper interest that mm -hmm. still respects the distinction between politics in these realms, but doesn't deny that uh, all these other um, roles and identities take place in a political context. And Aristotle from the beginning said, you can't get away from that. You can't divorce it from that. And even our own liberal society uh, has, has, has been unable to you know, divorce itself from that, that wisdom that goes all the way back to ancient Greece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in, indeed. And I, I was, you know, talking to people, I was out at New St. Andrews recently and talking to some, some students and the, um, you know, it was, it was telling me, you know, in a sense there, there is nothing pre-political because politics at the most basic level is just us living together and figuring out, you know, we're, we're social and intellectual creatures. How do we relate? Um, you know, I think back to Montesquieu, he says, you know, law is the relation between things. And so as, right. as intellectual creatures, we, you know, this is how we regulate uh, our activities together. Uh, if we're getting into talking about, you know, what what should the state authority do or the, the governing authority? You know, those are questions where you can get into limitations and think about that. But in a sense, there's, you know, everything is is political life because we're not isolated creatures. Um, and, and most people, I think, when they think about politics are thinking about our particular form of electoral politics and they're bored with it or they don't, you know, they think it's kind of futile. Um, but really your day-to-day -day life at the market, you know, is, is politics. And this is just in, in your domestic sphere is politics. And this is, uh, you know, really is what unifies uh, all their disciplines. And I think if people would have a broader view, like you're kind of trying to inculcate in, in your students, um, it, it would potentially change even their view of the electoral politics and government action. Oh, I think I, I, I try to do that. And, and, and one thing I actually do with my students is my 101 students, who again are not all majors, is I'll ask them their favorite movie or TV show. And I'll kind of note it in my opening day. And I, I'm now getting old, so I don't necessarily <laughs> know as many of their TV shows and movies as I did when I first started. But I can always find a group where something political is going on where some question of right and wrong and how law or society should order itself according to that right and wrong, some outrage about not doing it, some vindication of doing it is involved e even in some of the, uh, uh, in some of the most asinine movies. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, and I use that as a way of saying you think and do politics in the Aristotelian and in the mm -hmm. classical sense that the founders would have agreed with as well, way more than you realize it. So how about we get down to the business of figuring out how to do it better since you really can't avoid it? Let, let, right. let, yeah, let's try to do it decently. Right. Yes, movies and, uh, you know, the best, the best Montesquieu references in the office when, you know, Michael Scott says he wants people to be afraid of how much they love him, which is the blending of monarchy and despotism. You know, so right. It's, right. It's the, right. Um, with a touch of, with a touch of Machiavelli in there. With the touch of Machiavelli. Yeah. Yeah. You can learn a lot of, you don't need the old Testament. You can just watch the office and learn what you need to know about, about politics. Um, yep. Anyway, Adam, it's, we could keep talking. There, there's other things I could ask you about and we could keep talking. Um, you know, about the courts, I would encourage everybody to, to follow Adam's, uh, you know, popular commentary I mentioned al already. He often writes about 
court cases going on or the direction of, of the Supreme Court generally. I know you've written academic work on Justice Thomas, and uh, these are all very, very useful. I commend them to, to everyone. Um, Adam, you're, you're on Twitter, is that right? Uh, I am. I am. Okay. I, I can't say I'm the world's most active, but I, I do post uh, regularly uh, things I'm writing, uh, things I'm engaging with. So, yeah. Okay, good. So people can follow your work there. Uh, again, I recommend that that highly. Um, Adam, thanks so much for making time for this and uh, having a sort of freewheeling discussion about all kinds of stuff. I think it'll be uh, encouraging and in, informative for people. I appreciate you taking the time. This was a, a, a real joy for me, and maybe we can maybe we can do it again sometime if you're game and talk about some of the the, the court stuff. I'd, I'd love to do that too. Absolutely, that sounds good to me.